What I'd like to do today is turn to John 18, 1 through 14. We're beginning a, a mini-series of sermons focusing on the, the, the suffering and death of Christ. And what I'd like to do is focus in the next four weeks in John, in John chapter, the Gospel of John chapter 18 and 19. Today we plan to focus on his arrest, and then the following weeks, his trial, then his sentence, and then his crucifixion. That'll be Good Friday. So we'd like to focus on his, his arrest today. Um, and really the question is, who planned Christ's arrest? That's what we want to answer. And we're going to see that he ultimately is, is, uh, is arrested for our sakes. So if you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Let's turn there. John 18, verses 1 through 14. Or if you're speaking Punjabi, Yuhuna Tara Line Ik To Chaudatak. Let's hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, see, he's just coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed the prayer. You can read about that in Matthew 26. Prayed three times, asking the Father if he would let this cup pass. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so he is just exiting the garden. And now we read in 18 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And therefore, knowing all these things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him, now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, referring to his disciples, let them go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon our word as we hear it. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us your word in written form. We pray that you would give to us so that we may hear, that we may read, we may learn, but also apply your word. We acknowledge our need for your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. We pray that we, through the comfort of your word, may embrace Christ. 
we may embrace him and also the joy of the hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So that's our focus this morning is John 18, 1 to 14, the entire 14 verses. You know, beloved in Christ, we live in uncertain times. I don't think I need to say that again and again, but we live in those times. We live in anxious times, concerns about loss of jobs, concerns about the economy, concerns about health with a contagious virus now in our world. Our government has put in place a battle plan to fight the virus. But as we come together this morning, what Christ does for us goes far beyond what any human being, what any government on earth can do. We look to him, to our risen Savior and King, the risen Lord. He fought for his people all the way to death. When his people faced, as one pastor put it, the ultimate sin virus. What did he do? He sacrificed his life to save us so that we might have life. He alone could conquer the terrible, the most terrible virus, the sin virus, through his death on the cross, rising again from the dead the third day to share the victory of life with all who believe in him. What a beautiful message that we can go forth with and rest in. This is certain. While other things around us are uncertain, this is certain. This is the certainty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which we hope to hear over the next few weeks. That's why in certain times, in uncertain times like these, we still celebrate what God did for us in Christ during Good Friday and also the Easter seasons, what he did in his death and resurrection. John 18 and 19, what you see there, as you read those two chapters, one main thing you see in these two chapters, Christ reveals the full extent of his love for his own. And he reveals that extent of his love in his arrest, number one. Number two, in his trial. Number three, in his sentence in that trial. And number four, ultimately in his crucifixion. There you see the battle that Christ gains, or the, the battle that Christ wins for our salvation. And so today, what we do is we look at the first 14 verses of John 18, and we look at the arrest of Jesus for our, our sakes. But the question I want to answer this morning, too, is who orchestrated his arrest? Who planned it? I mean, you see some thugs arresting him, but who planned it? Who orchestrated his arrest. What I like to see in these uh, verses from the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 11, you see three things. In verses 1 through 6, you see how Jesus directs his own arrest. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one directing his own arrest. Second of all, we're going to see also that Jesus protects his own disciples from arrest. That's verses 7 through 9. He protects them from arrest. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus obeys the will of the Father in his arrest. So those three things, Jesus directs his rest, 1 through 6. 
Jesus protects his own from arrest, seven through nine, and Jesus obeys the will of the Father in his arrest, 10 and 11. So first of all, you notice here the battle lines are drawn. When you, when you, when you read these first six verses, what should be in the back of your mind is Genesis 3.15, right? Remember the mother promised the conflict between Satan and Christ, between light and darkness, and how, how Christ will have the ultimate victory? Well, you see that being played out here. You see that being uh, worked out here in a very strong and real way already in these verses. The battle lines are drawn. Jesus, with his disciples, you could say the church on the one side, and the forces of darkness, the powers of darkness on the other side, you have the Roman troops, the Jewish contingent from the chief priests, the Pharisees. And sad to say, one who was formerly from one of Jesus' own disciples, and that was Judas, who betrayed him. What you see here, the whole world is after Jesus. That's what we see in verses 1 through 6. Even ultimately, the disciples will flee from him. Jesus will be all alone. Right? This is a really important point to understand here. He will be all alone, fighting, battling for our salvation. But, you know, as you read these verses, 1 through 6, at first glance, Judas seems to be the leading person here, the leading figure. He seems to be the one that's in control of the situation. He seems to be the one that's in charge. He's the one who knows where to find Jesus. See verse 2? He knew the place. Very important. He says It says there, he knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 2. After all, Judas was with Jesus before. He met with them. He met with his disciples. He served with them, but now he has left him in God's plan. Judas seems to be the central person here, one who lifted up his heels against Christ, Psalm 41, verse 9. Now he seems to be the central person in Jesus' arrest. He comes into the garden where Jesus and the disciples are, and there you see Judas coming, leading with the armed soldiers, the Roman contingent. But he also comes with the Jewish contingent. It's the world. It stands for the world. They appear with lanterns and torches and weapons. Imagine, imagine that. Torches and weapons to search for Jesus, who is the light of the world. Imagine that. Weapons to subdue whom? The Prince of Peace. He's the light of the world. He's the Prince of Peace. And now he's treated as if he were a criminal. Yes, Judas, he comes here as the big man. That's, that's the problem of, of the natural man, right? He thinks he's big. But Judas exudes in a, such a very terrible way. He seems to be the one that's in charge. And Jesus seems to be the one that's a helpless victim was unable to do anything about it. That's the way it seems when you read those first six verses. That's that first glance. But really, Jesus is, and he remains, the master, the Lord, the king of the battle scene. 
not his enemies, not even Judas. He's the one who's directing all the circumstances so that he will be arrested for your sakes and my sakes. Notice verse 1. He's the one that comes forth. He's the one that goes forth with his disciples across the brook Kridron. And now in verses 4 through 6, you read that there again. Jesus, knowing all things, see that? Knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward. There's a second time. Verse 1, you hear him going forward. And now in verse 4, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. You know, there's such, there's such power in those words, but sad power. Judas stood with them. He's no longer standing with Christ. He's standing against Christ, with the enemies, in the kingdom of darkness, against Christ. Now, when Jesus said to, him, said to them, I am he, notice what happened. The entire army, the entire troops there, they fall back and they pile on top of each other. Can you imagine? You have a massive crowd there and they just, all the people fall on top of each other. So that's what exactly happened here. You know what? Notice whom they're arresting. They're arresting the great I am. I am he. And Jesus reveals who he is in that what happens to them. They just fall to the ground into a pile of people. Now, just a few things here. Three little things. First, notice he's the one that goes forward to them. He's directing his own arrest. He's the one that moves forward. He's the one that puts himself into the hands of his enemies. He knows everything. Notice what he says that in verse 4? He said in verse 4, um, yeah, knowing all things that would come upon him. That's why he moves forward. They didn't have to look for him. <laughs> they didn't have to come up with lanterns searching in the dark. He goes right up to them, offering himself. That's the first thing. The second thing, notice that Jesus knows who they're looking for. Twice he asks a question, whom are you looking for? He knows who they're looking for. The point here is he offers himself two times. I am he. Okay, What he's saying is, take me. He goes to them and he's inviting them to take him in his arrest. He's directing the way. He's directing all the circumstances towards his death for your and my salvation. You see how Christ in a very real way is fulfilling the promise, God's promise in Genesis 3.15. Remember there, God said that Satan would strike his heel. That's what's going on here. He's striking his heel. Looks like Christ is losing the battle, right? But ultimately, Christ will gain the victory through his resurrection. The third thing here, you see the power and authority of the great I am. They come with weapons. Jesus comes with his word. There's no more powerful weapon than the word. Jesus speaks. He just simply uh, reveals who he is. I am he. And immediately they fall into one pile. You think Judas fell with them? Oh, yeah. Judas may have been on the bottom, I don't know, or on the top. If he was in the front, he probably just fell on, on the top of a pile of people. But the point here, Jesus is revealing himself 
through this sign. It's really a sign. Them falling on top of each other is a sign of what? That he's the king. As king, he could have easily destroyed his enemies by his divine power. But he's not that kind of king. By his power, he's the one that's directing, controlling the powers of darkness. He's the one. Those, those powers of darkness are in his hand, and he's directing them. He's turning them to arrest him. Can you imagine that? That's, that's, that's sovereign. That's the sovereign authority of God himself. That's how much he loves you and me. Those hands that arrest him. He made those hands. Those wicked hands that arrest him. He directs those hands. Quick application. You know, Lord knows all things. He directs all things. Also today, he worked out his own arrest for your salvation. You notice how Christ goes forward? He goes forward so calmly. He calmly steps forward. Resolutely, yes. But you notice the calmness in Christ. And he faces an isolation. We talk about social distancing today. But he faced an isolation no man could ever face. Condemned, rejected, and punished for your sakes, for your and my sin. And notice another thing. He didn't try to back out of it. He didn't try to get out of it. He remained committed. He remained calm through it all, knowing exactly what would happen. He was carrying out his hour, that's how much he cares. If that's how much he cares, we can trust him also to care for us in our days of trouble. You know, the powers of darkness are in his hands. The master of the winds and the waves. Remember that story? The master of the winds and the waves is fully in control also of our situations today. But we're called to live by faith. Are we living by faith? Christ calls us to live by faith. He calls us to trust in him. Because he's the one who in reality brings the peace and calm that we so much need. All things are in his hands. We can trust him for that. Notice, you see how he does that. You see how he protects his own. You see that in verses Seven through nine. It just flows, doesn't it? He protects his own from arrest. And that leads us to verses seven, eight, and nine. Here are the, his disciples with him on the front lines of battle. But how will his disciples ever have the power to combat the powers of sin, of fear, and of darkness? They need one. They too, his disciples also need one to deliver them from the grip of those powers. You know, earlier, if you read Matthew 26, 31, 35, you read there that the disciples are very uh, self-assured, self-confident. Oh, Lord, Lord, if you're going to die, we're ready to die with you. But they don't really understand that Jesus needs to die for them. That Jesus needs to deliver them from the power of sin. Jesus knows, and he spoke to them earlier. 
He said that when he's taken, all of his disciples, even the remaining 11, would scatter. They would all stumble. Jesus knows, just as he predicted, that Peter would also deny him three times. Jesus knows all these things. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of this suffering, you see Jesus protecting his own at this important hour. Notice what he says to the armed troops in verse 7. He says, if you're looking for me, that's fine, but let them go. Arrest me. Don't arrest them. Let these go your way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. And he spoke these words earlier in John 17 in his prayer. Of those whom you gave me, he's saying to the Father, of those whom the Father has given me, I have lost none. Jesus sees to it that his disciples are not arrested. Even in his great suffering, Jesus does not forget his own disciples. He's not even ultimately thinking about himself. He's thinking about his church, the one he will die for, shed his blood for. He stands with them and for them. And he remembers. He remembers their weaknesses. He remembers the weaknesses of his disciples. He knows they were not ready for it. He knows they could never endure it. And he mercifully makes a way of escape for them. Isn't that what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10? He also mercifully makes a way of escape for us. He can't give, He won't give us more than what we can handle or endure. But I think we can say something more here. Jesus' suffering is unique in that um, that is his arrest, his trial, his sentence, and crucifixion. Unique in the sense that that suffering applies only to him in the sense that he alone is the atoning sacrifice for sins. No one else is. That's what we mean by unique here, the one and only. He's the only one that can accomplish all of this for his own. Jesus must be arrested alone for us and for our salvation. This is the important point here. No one can suffer like Jesus did because he suffered uniquely. He's the one who goes to battle against the powers of sin, death, and Satan alone in our place. Why? Because we are the ones through our sin in Adam that handed ourselves over to the powers of sin. There's no way we can deliver ourselves from it, from the power of sin, and even from the power of death. There's only one who can do that, and that's one who can endure, who can take upon himself the wrath, the eternal wrath of God against our sin. There's only one who can do that, that can take the wrath of God upon you from your sin, upon me from my sin, and that's Christ. He's the Son of God who became man for that very reason. Amazing the ways of God, aren't they? All of grace, God's grace. The disciples are forever safe, forever safe through Christ's arrest and death. Isn't that what Jesus says? So that none of them will be lost. You know, by setting them free from physical arrest, this is a picture of their eternal salvation and also ours. 
by letting his disciples go, Jesus fulfills those words he spoke earlier. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. All whom the Father has given to him, for them he sacrifices his life. And what's the foundation of that? You notice that twice the Father is mentioned, right? In verse 9, but also in verse 11. All those whom the Father has given me, I will lose none. Why is that? Because he will take the bitter cup of suffering that the Father has given to him. Let's make a quick application here. Economic health, our physical health. Yeah, these are concerns, real genuine concerns. There is fear and there is panic. But who is our certainty in uncertain times? Christ is. He is with us. The one who died for us. He's not going to drop us. None of us, none of the ones whom God, whom the Father has given to him will be lost. None. It's very clear here. All the ones the Father has given to them, to him, he will save. He's not going to leave us. Never. Never. You know, and that reminds us we need to repent from time to time of our low thoughts about Christ. Of our low thoughts about him. And again, we're reminded to trust him in his powerful word. And his promises, which are so sure and everlasting, he has won the battle already. In, unto- in, un- in unknown times like these, we can say with the psalmist, he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. You shall not be afraid. Of four things, it says there. You shall not be afraid of the terror of night. Second, nor the arrow that flies by day. Third, nor the pestilent that walks in darkness. And fourth, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. One writer says it this way. He will hold the winds and the storms in his hands and not allow believers, however tested they are, to lose their salvation in the battles of the day. John 10, 28, Jesus himself says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do rest in his promises for you. Notice, he protects his disciples from arrest. And look at the the assurance that we have in him, that none may be lost. How can we be so, so sure of his protection? How can we be so sure? Because in his arrest and death, Jesus was not carrying out his own will merely, but he was carrying out the will of his Father in heaven. And that leads us to our third and final point. Jesus obeys the will of the Father in his arrest. And you know what? You notice here how Peter fights against that? How? Look at verse 10. Simon Peter, he has a sword, probably a sword that he used for the slaughter of the lambs. And he takes out of his sheath and he strikes the right, the right ear of the, the, the high priest's servant, Melchus. He cuts it off. You know, just inches away from going down through the middle of his head, just inches away from killing him. <laughs> Peter thought he had Jesus' best interest in mind. He didn't think about how Jesus had his best interest in mind. He thought he could save Jesus. And that's why he uses a sword to strike Malchus. But salvation does not come by taking a life. 
How does salvation come? By Jesus giving his life. By Jesus laying down his life for us and for our salvation. You notice Jesus here. Uh, if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 51, you see Jesus' love even for his enemy here. What does he do with Malchus's ear? He touches Malchus's ear and he heals him. Peter was standing in the way of Jesus obeying the will of the Father for us. Isn't that grace? That Christ, you could say, removed Peter out of the way so that he could continue to go on the pathway of the cross for us. Peter was standing in the way of Jesus accomplishing salvation for his own. Thank God for his grace. Thank God that he over, oversees, or not oversees, but that he, in spite of our sinfulness, still directs our salvation in his way. Finally, verse 11, Jesus commands Peter to put a sword in his sheath. And we hear these final words of Jesus before his arrest. These are the last words of Jesus before his arrest. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? In short, the cup of suffering. That's what it is. What is that cup? It's the cup of suffering. He had to accomplish all the work the father had given him to do for us in our salvation. Giving his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know that cup? It was a full cup. But that cup was filled with bitterness. The bitter agony of his suffering. He struggled just moments earlier in the garden. Remember how he prayed with agony in the garden? Human like us in every way, except without sin. Remember his prayer? Oh, my father. If this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. The struggle was real. Let's not minimize the struggle that he faced. But it was us he had in mind. Jesus did not shrink away from obeying the Father's will. He was not afraid of dying at God's appointed hour. He didn't shy away from it or flee from it. He took our death upon himself for this very purpose to give us life. We may face self-isolation, maybe for a time, isolation from family and friends, but he's about to face an isolation as no one has ever faced. We hope to see that in the next few weeks. But notice here in verses 12 through 14, just really briefly before we close, notice here how Jesus calmly, resolutely, decidedly hands himself over to them, to the thugs, to those haters. And we read, they arrested him. Notice they did three things. They arrested him. They bound him. They led him away. That's what we conclude for today. But notice the good news here. Jesus, the perfect, innocent Lamb of God, He's willing allow he, he willingly allows himself to be bound. For what purpose? In order to free us from bondage. Some of us may feel bound in our homes. It may be difficult, but far worse, however, is to be bound in our sins. That's the worst kind of binding there can ever be in this world. Not to be bound in a prison, 
but to be bound in the prison of our sins. One pastor posted this week, he said, true love for the neighbor calls a follower of Jesus to warn the world of the deadliest virus of all, our sin and the coming judgment. But also, and more importantly, to proclaim the greatest news of all, and that is Jesus saves. So brothers and sisters, spread the news, hold fast to the truth, be certain of what our Lord has done for you, live out of it certainty, and know that you may live your life by faith. Spread the news, the great news of Jesus Christ. Who planned Jesus' arrest? Well, you, you see it's the thugs that arrested him. That's true. But who planned it? Who orchestrated Christ's arrest? God did. He did in his sovereignty, according to his eternal plan. And he planned it using the hands of these men. Here you see, as we saw, Jesus, first of all, directed it. He directed his own arrest. And in directing his own arrest, what does he do? He protects his own from arrest. And as he does so, he's obeying the will of the Father, the mighty God, arrested for your sakes, that you may that he may set you free. And that you may have life forever. Live out this joy, the joy of your salvation in him. And God bless you, brothers and sisters. Amen.